This is Acts 4, uh, 23 through 31. This is Peter and John. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your Holy Spirit Jesus, Holy Servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The word of the Lord. It was November 22nd, 1963, a day that for many of us will live in infamy. John F. Kennedy and his wife Jacqueline were in a presidential motorcade in Dallas, Texas for a parade driving down near the uh, Texas book bindery when shots rang out. The president was hit. He was rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital where they tried to operate on him, but it was too late and President Kennedy died. Approximately an hour and 22 minutes, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested for the murder of John F. Kennedy. Oswald communicated that he was the only one involved, that there was a single and solitary act. And this was evidence that the Harding Commission looked at for 10 months and concluded the same, that there was only one person involved with the killing of John F. Kennedy. But as the weeks and months went by, different accounts began to emerge. Conflicting witnesses came forward. How many shots were fired? Three or four? And from what direction? People came forward talking about a suspicious group of people on a grassy knoll that were over in front of the president. People, experts supposedly, who looked at the film said that the president wouldn't move in such a way when he was shot. In fact, there was so much question about uh, President Kennedy's assassination that by the year 2004, in a national poll, over 80% of people surveyed did not believe that Lee Harvey Oswald worked alone. When asked, well, what happened, theories be, uh, emerged. It was the KGB. It was the mafia. It was the FBI. It was the CIA. Heck, it was Frank Sinatra. It was somebody, though. It was clear that this was a conspiracy. Many of us are familiar with conspiracy theories, aren't we? They abound. They're everywhere. Who here hasn't heard of Area 51? a secret military base where supposedly the U.S. Army is experimenting on aliens, such as my children. Um, or Elvis. How about Elvis? Elvis is not dead. In fact, Elvis is down on the shores of Brazil somewhere, sunning himself. He only faked his death. And this is my favorite conspiracy theory, that the United States did not go to the moon. Rather, the whole thing was staged in a television studio in Las Vegas. I actually happen to believe that one. Ask my kids. I think it's true. Well, what is a conspiracy theory? Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, uh, puts it this way. A conspiracy theory is an attempt to attribute the ultimate cause of an event 
chain of events or the concealment of causes from public knowledge to a secret and often deceptive plan by a group of people or organizations. A conspiracy theory is the story behind the story. It's the hidden story that helps to make the story that is on the surface make sense. And the truth is, we want things to make sense, don't we? So when we see something like the Kennedy assassination, we want to make sense. We want to understand the story behind the story. I think that's kind of like this life. We want to try to make sense of this life, understand our circumstances. Why are we here? Where did we come from? What's the purpose in our life? What's the story behind the story? And the great thing about this passage is it tells us about the story that's behind the story. It reveals a conspiracy that's not a theory, but rather an actuality. And the conspiracy is this, that God has entered the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, who has a message for us from God. And the world is trying its best to diminish or destroy the person and message of Jesus Christ. All of life is bound up in the tension of this conspiracy. And how we choose to respond to this conspiracy will determine whether we find meaning in our life or meaninglessness. Well, these are pretty big claims. Are you going to be able to prove them, Carlos? Well, I hope so. There are three things I want to discuss in this sermon. Number one, because I want to prove that there is a conspiracy, so we must recognize it. Number two, because in fact there is a conspiracy, I want to challenge us to respond to it. And finally, I want us to respond to this conspiracy by propagating a new conspiracy, by in effect becoming co-conspirators. Well, let's take a look at this, proving that there is this grand, vast conspiracy that I'm talking about. What is this conspiracy? Well, Peter and John have just in this passage uh, uh, come back. You'll recall that they were heading to the temple in chapter 3, and they saw a, a paralytic beggar at the gate, and they healed him in the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, thousands of people began to gather, trying to make sense of what had occurred. And Peter and John had preached the good news of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, that led immediately to their arrest. They were arrested, they were brought before the Sanhedrin, who were the religious leaders of the time, and they were interrogated. And then they were threatened and warned not to preach in the name of this person, Jesus Christ, anymore. And then they were released. And so here we are in this passage, now that they've come back to their own people. Well, what is it that Peter and John do? They do something very interesting. They pray. The first is they pray to God. They say, Sovereign Lord. Notice they use the word Sovereign Lord. In fact, in the Greek, despota is the word from which we get the word despot, but without the negative connotations. In other words, Creator God, the one who is in charge of all things. That is how they pray. And they quote a psalm that was written over a thousand years ago through King David. Sovereign Lord, this is verse 32, you spoke through the mouth of David. Why do the nations argue and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. See, they're saying, look, there's a conspiracy that's going on here. That the kings and the nations and the rulers and the people have gathered together not only against you, God, but against the one who is your anointed one. Now, what does it mean, the anointed one? The anointed one, back in the history, 
uh, when, an, when a king was anointed in Israel, either the prophet or the high priest would come to that person who was to be anointed king, and he would take some oil, and he would put it on that person's head, and he would anoint them with oil. The Hebrew word there is meshach, and he would be known as the Mashiach, the smeared one. That's where we get the word the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And they're praying, they're saying, why do the rulers of the earth take their stand against you and against your king, the Messiah? And then they go on in verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, the one you anointed, and who were gathered? Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and the people of Israel. In other words, everybody. What you said a thousand years ago, Jesus, is coming true right now with the people being gathered around against Jesus. And even more so, in our life, aren't they doing the same thing to us, Lord? Because didn't they just interrogate us and tell us not to preach in the name of this person, Jesus Christ? Now, isn't that interesting? They're saying that there is this conspiracy, whether it's a thousand years B.C. or 33 A.D. or even the year 2010 A.D. as well. A conspiracy. Now, you may object to this. You may say, there's, there's no conspiracy, Carlos. What are you talking about? We have freedom of religion. Well, I want to suggest to you that there is a campaign even now going on to suppress the name of Jesus Christ, an overt campaign and a covert campaign. The overt campaign is happening in places like China and India and the Middle East. I get a rap sheet every week uh, from issues going on around the world related to Christianity. India, church destroyed. China, church is targeted. Iran, imprisonment continues. Turkmenistan, pastor faces charges. Ethiopia, Muslims attack convert. It goes on and on and on. It's ironic that the 20th century, which was considered the most progressive century of all, had the most martyrs. Over 26 million Christians martyred in the name of Christ. And it's also ironic that where Christianity is growing the fastest, the persecution is the most severe. Is that a coincidence or is that a conspiracy? Well, that's over there. What about in our country? You know, we're here talking about Christ. There's no one banging on the door threatening to haul us away. But is there not a covert conspiracy to tamp down the name of Jesus Christ even in our country? How about holidays? We used to send Christmas cards, but now we send holiday greetings, even though Christmas cards were invented because of Christmas. What about Christmas lights? Well, now they're holiday festivals. Christmas, Christ has been almost entirely taken out of Christmas. What about in the public sphere? Is there not a concerted campaign to eliminate Jesus Christ from any public space whatsoever? Are people still able to pray in Jesus' name in the public sphere anymore? How about in the academic space? What if someone was able to walk into a place and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as a professor, he would be laughed out of Dodge. In fact, in the academic space, the movement abroad is to say that there is no objective truth whatsoever for anything. We call that religious pluralism. But there's a big problem with that, isn't there? <clears throat> you see, what happens when you say there's no objective truth whatsoever? 
And that's the objective truth. You see, it's a self-effacing argument. How about this? There's no such thing as an ultimate authority. And I'm the ultimate authority that just told you that there's no such thing as an ultimate authority. How about this? It's arrogant to consider that there's only one Lord and one God. That's an arrogant Western thing. But the truth of the matter is if you go around the country to other countries like India and the Middle East, they think that very clearly. In fact, is it not Western arrogance to take our values and to impose them on other people as well? See, there is a covert plan to go ahead and tamp down the name and message of Jesus Christ. All religious systems, whether Christian or atheist or agnostic, lay claim to some objective truth. The question is not whether there is truth. The question is which truth? In the U.S. Naval Institute proceedings, the magazine of the Naval Institute, sailor Frank Koch illustrates the importance of obeying a critical law of the sea. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. Koch says, I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy uh, patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern, the captain called out. The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, Signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you to change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send. I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman. Second class came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send, I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. We changed course. You see, once the captain understood the greater reality, he understood that he had to adjust to it. It didn't matter that he was a battleship because no battleship can overtake a continent. And he adjusted. And so what I'm trying to point out is that there is a greater reality going on, a greater conspiracy regarding this person, Jesus Christ. And we cannot fail to recognize that this person is the most fascinating person that has ever walked the face of the earth. To fail to recognize, to live up to the skepticism of the United States is to miss the whole point. C.S. Lewis challenges us this way. He says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. And so we must recognize that life makes no sense if there is no God. And that this Jesus cannot be ignored. Someone that comes and claims to be the king, the anointed one, the way, the truth, and the life cannot be ignored. We must recognize what is going on around us. Because to not recognize the greater reality of God who has come into the world is to eventually end up in the realm of the absurd. 
You know, in America, we are living in the realm of the absurd. America is like Verizon Fios. There's 300 channels and there's nothing on. You know, I was watching a show recently, very funny show, 30 Rock. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not much of a TV guy, but I was watching 30 Rock with Alec Baldwin and Tina Fey, who, by the way, are hilarious. Very funny people, uh, laughing, uh, sometimes shouldn't be laughing, and I'm watching it, and it finally occurred to me after a while, because I'm like, there's something wrong with the show. I can't quite figure out what's wrong with it. And then I figured it out. It's a show about nothing. It's a show about nothing. There's no meaning. It's, it's a hollow show. It's funny. It's clever. It's engaging. But there's nothing underneath it. There's no meaning to it, no substance. And I look at some of the other shows, like The Office, very funny, very funny. But the same thing, it's a show about nothing. How about Seinfeld, the granddaddy of them all? The funniest show of them all was expressly written as a show about nothing. And why is this show about nothing? The reason is because there's nothing to say. If you go and join into the great conspiracy, the human conspiracy, there's nothing to say because there's no meaning. They recently wrapped up the uh, TV show series Lost, which I used to watch some with my wife. And, you know, very interesting show, very visually engaging. But, you know, there's something very interesting about that show. By the end of it, you couldn't tell who was good. And you couldn't tell who was bad. There was no black or white. There was only gray. There was only static. To fail to recognize the coming of the king is to ultimately fall into the realm of the absurd. Here's how you know whether you recognize the conspiracy or not. Number one, is there anything, any battle in your life worth fighting? Is there any king in your life worth serving? Is there any cause in your life worth dying for? Or is it all just gray? 300 channels and there's nothing on. We must recognize the conspiracy or we will ultimately end up in absurdity. Well, if you do recognize the conspiracy, I, now I want to challenge you, this is my second point, to respond to it. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all in the conspiracy. Look at verse 25. Why do the nations rage and the kings and the rulers and the peoples plot in vain? This is a comprehensive list, including all the peoples. Guess what? That includes us. It includes me. I'm in this conspiracy. Now, you may say, wait a second, Carlos. Don't, don't include me. I'm, I'm just a bystander. I'm, I'm on the side watching this thing played out. But Scripture doesn't give us that option, does it? It gives a comprehensive picture God and the world engaged in this battle. We are in the conspiracy. But yet we see something else, that not everyone is against Christ. Look at Peter and John and these believers who are praying, praying for the name of Jesus Christ. Somehow they've moved from one side, from the people's side, over to the other side, to the Christ side. How has that occurred? There's only one answer. There's another conspiracy. There's two conspiracies. There's the conspiracy of man, and there's the divine conspiracy of God. That somehow Jesus has the ability to penetrate the hearts of his enemies and turn them into his followers and friends. At the close of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was criticized for being too courteous to his enemies. Once he was reminded that it was his duty as president to destroy the enemies of his country, Lincoln replied, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? 
You see, the divine conspiracy is that though man is an enemy of God and seeks to destroy and deny him, Christ, God's king, is a friend of man and seeks to restore and revive him. In the human conspiracy, Jesus is brutal. He's a tyrant that wants to enslave us. But in the divine conspiracy, we see that Jesus came to rescue us. John 14, Jesus said it himself, For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is the God-man who represents God and represents man as well with the divine task of bringing God and man together again. The divine conspiracy is that though man sought to destroy Christ by ending his life, Jesus Christ ended his life so that those men would not be destroyed. The divine conspiracy is not of hatred, but it's of love. For, Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Christ is in the business of turning enemies into allies, not by force, but by love. What were the weapons of Christ? Were they lightning, thunder, condemnation, judgment? No, they were a whip and a crown, three nails and a cross. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. There is a way to move from the human conspiracy to the divine conspiracy, the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how can I be sure of this, Carlos? I've been in this battle for so long with God. How can I really believe that what you're saying is true? Because I've been told something very different all the way from the beginning. Well, let me ask you a question. Is the way Jesus acts the way an enemy acts? What kind of enemy dies for his opponent? What about the second reason, the response of the apostles, the followers of Jesus? Do they react the way an enemy acts? Their king, Jesus, has been threatened. And how do they respond? With condemnation? No, with prayer. Now, Lord, verse 27, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In other words, Lord, help us to spread the gospel, the good news that in Jesus Christ, God is a friend of man and not an enemy. They want the gospel to go forth because God's anointed is in the business of turning enemies into allies, not by force, but by love. Some of you may have heard of Second Lieutenant Hiru Onoda, the most famous of all Japanese World War II holdouts. His story was widely reported in the world media. On December 26, 1944, at the age of 23, Hiru Onoda was sent to the small Philippine island of Lumbag Island, approximately 75 miles southwest of Manila. Shortly after the Americans landed, and all but four of the Japanese soldiers either died or surrendered. Hiro Onoda was with three other holdouts who all died over the decades in 1954 and in 1972. Despite the efforts of the Philippine army, uh, letters and newspapers left for them, radio broadcasts, and even a plea from Onoda's brother, he did not believe the war was over. 
On February 20, 1974, Onoda encountered a young Japanese university dropout named Norio Suzuki, who was traveling the worlds, and he told his friends that he was going to look for Lieutenant Onoda. The two became friends, but Onoda said he was waiting for orders from one of his commanders. On March 9, 1974, Onoda went to an agreed-upon place and found a note that had been left there by Suzuki. Suzuki had brought along Onoda's one-time superior commander, Major Taniguchi, who delivered oral orders for Onoda to surrender. Intelligence officer 2nd Lieutenant Hiro Onoda emerged from the jungle of Lumbag Island with his 25 caliber rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades. He surrendered 29 years after Japan's formal surrender and 15 years after being declared legally dead in Japan. When he accepted that the war was over, he wept openly. See, Lieutenant Onoda was trained to believe that all were enemies save for Japan. And despite the overwhelming evidence that was brought to show him the truth that the war was over, he continued to hide out to protect himself. Some may say that this is honor. In fact, when he went back to Japan, he received a hero's welcome. But the truth is, for over 29 years, he was living a lie living out in the corner of a jungle somewhere where he could have been living with his family and experiencing the true reality of life. How did he give up? It was his commanding officer, one who was like him, who came to him where he was and told him the truth and he believed him. See, God has come to us in this divine conspiracy. He didn't come to us with a book he didn't come to us with a radio message, with a sign in the sky. He sent a man, one like us. The war can be over. Come home. And that is the message of the gospel. And I am here to bring you the message, surrender to the love of Christ, and the war can be over. Perhaps you are at war with God. You've been at war with Him for a while. There's bitterness in your life between you and God. I don't know the reason why. Maybe it was a relationship that you had as a kid or with a spouse. Some injustice maybe that came upon you. Maybe it was with a church that told you some picture of God that was totally not who he was. I don't know. But I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to surrender to the love of Christ. God has sent a man who says, look at my hands Feel my side. See, is this the work of an enemy or of a friend? John 1.12 puts it this way, Yet to all who received him, to those who believe, he gave the right to become children of God. The war is over for those who choose to embrace him as Savior. Which brings me to my final point. If there are two conspiracies, a human conspiracy and a divine conspiracy, God calls us to be a part of his divine conspiracy, to become co-conspirators, as it were, revealing the truth of this world. See, once we have come home to God, once we have started our relationship with Jesus Christ, once we have discovered that God loves us, we have a picture of a whole new reality. We have a new king who cares for us and protects us. We have a new future, a new place to go home to. You know, as I look at these scriptures, I wonder, how is it that these guys were so fearless, able to stand in front of a whole nation and said, I will preach Christ? The answer is simple. 
they knew that they had an inheritance, a place to come home to, a king who would never forsake them. And yet the truth of the matter is that we still live in the same world, whether we've been rescued or not, surrounded by the same people, holding out against the same God. The world hasn't changed. We have. And so God gives us a new message. Tell people that Christ loves them. Who would be better to tell holdouts that the war is over than those who were once holdouts themselves? And so that's exactly what Peter and John do here in verse 29. They ask for boldness. Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak this truth with great boldness. They ask for power. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Go before us, Jesus. We can't do this alone. We need your power. And in verse 31, we see that God responds to their prayer. His power is manifested. They are given boldness. They go and proclaim the love of Christ in his boldness. And people are transformed by the divine conspiracy of love. God has given you, if you are a believer in Christ and me, a new mission to be a part of the divine conspiracy. We all know holdouts, don't we? Friends, family, spouses, we were once like them. And you may say, I don't know how to reach this person. Their defenses are so strong against God. There's no way they'll ever come, ever believe this message of grace that you're sharing with me. The truth is, Somebody has to reach out to them, and you are in the most advantage uh, place to do so, where you work, live, and play, and myself in my own sphere of influence. Here are three things that we must do. Number one, recognize that most people are antagonistic to the gospel, like Lieutenant Onoda, who wanted to keep at arm's length from people from coming in. We have to build bridges to people. We have to take the time to be sensitive to their needs, to go to them. They're not going to come here without us going to them first. We have to make sure that our life reflects the divine conspiracy in our own life. So when they get a touch as we brush up against them, they can, in fact, see something greater than themselves. Maybe a slight picture that, in fact, the war is over. We must pray as well. Recognize and pray. Pray for God's boldness. God, use a normal person just like me. Give me the boldness to step across that line into that uncomfortable space of religion and talk about the hope that is within me. Pray for God's power. God, I need you to go in front of me. I don't know what this is going to do for my relationship. Lord, I need you to stir in this person's heart, and God will do so. You'll know. You'll know that how God is stirring in a person's heart where you are to go because God is in the plan of rescuing. We're just his employers. We're just co-conspirators in this master divine conspiracy. And then finally, speak. Speak the gospel. Take that step of faith to utter the words, Jesus Christ loves you. Who might God be calling you and me to communicate to? Let us go forward in boldness and God will truly use us. I close with this thought. Uh, Many people have heard about the uh, gladiator games in Rome, uh, which were of unbelievable brutality. They would pit two champions together, sometimes slaves, and they would force them to fight until one killed the other. 
and the crowds, the Colosseum, 50, 60,000 people would come together to watch this blood sport. <clears throat> well, Theodoret of Cyrus tells the story of how the gladiator games stopped. <clears throat> there was a certain man, a monk named Telemachus, who had embraced following Jesus Christ. And he had set out from the east and was traveling through Rome when he heard the crowds and he saw the Colosseum. And as he walked into the Colosseum, he saw the abominable spectacle that was being exhibited. And he was overcome with compassion for these two men that were at war. And so he did something unthinkable, something that had never been done before. He jumped over the side of the Colosseum and ran into the center and he separated the two men and said, stop fighting. The crowd was enraged. They were indignant and inspired by the fury of the gladiators. They went ahead and ran through Telemachus with the sword and when he was not dead, they stoned the peacemaker to death. Well, as they had a chance to reflect upon the courage and the message of Telemachus, the city of Rome grew silent. And in fact, three days later, the emperor Honorius, having reflected upon what Telemachus had done, soberly decided to put an end to the impious spectacle of the gladiator games, and they were to be no more. The courage of a small monk to step into the battle, to separate those at war, and to bring the message of peace of Jesus Christ. It happened in 404 AD. Can it not happen also in 2010 AD? Let us go forth in the boldness of Jesus Christ to proclaim his message, and God will use us. Let us pray.